So, Sam, have you gotten over what happened last Sunday yet? Just about. I mean, we were so close, but I think the the main positive here is that I think the whole team on and off the pitch have been inspirational this summer, and I think it was exactly what we needed. And, um, yeah, my hearty congratulations go out to Italy, who were the better team on the night, but I think England did us proud. Well, it also had the added advantage that we covered the politics of the World Cup of the Euro 2020 winner, which is not often yeah. what we've gone predicted to have done really over in politics wise. So maybe we should change podcast focus. <laughs> no, but it was a great game to watch and fittingly went to penalties, I think. Well, there's going to be another penalty shootout because you have two elections to discuss and some time to go. It is Saturday, the 17th of July, 2021. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me as always down a Zoom link is my co-host Sam. How are you doing Sam? Are you looking forward to Freedom Day? I I am, yes. I mean, the first thing I'm looking forward to is we've got a bit of a heat wave this weekend in London. So I think it's going to be 30 degrees tomorrow, which will be lovely after a period of nonstop rain. But yes, Freedom Day approaches on Monday. And I, I think everyone's a little bit apprehensive about that. But we'll see what happens. Can I just say 30 degrees is at the lower end of my temperatures that we usually get here in Singapore. So I'm like, 30 degrees, come on, it's my normal day, really. Anyway, this week we'll be focusing our attention on two Eastern European countries who held parliamentary election last Sunday, which is Moldova and Bulgaria. Uh, Moldova's new president, Maya Sandu, was looking to convert a big victory in the presidential elections last November into a parliamentary win, and Bulgaria is heading to the polls for the second time in three months after April's inconclusive election result, where no one party or bloc was able to form a coalition government. So Sam, I suppose we should get straight to it and we should start with Moldova because it turned out to be a relatively easy and straightforward election win, didn't it Sam? It it certainly was. Um, As we said on Sunday, Moldova went to the polls in a snap parliamentary election which followed Maya Sandu's successful election as president back in November. The election itself had some quite bizarre origins. I don't know if you read up about this churn, but it was quite a turbulent period between the last parliamentary elections held in 2019 and the ones this time, because the government formation process from 2019 was actually taken to the Supreme Court in Moldova over the interpretation of how soon after the election the deal should have been signed. So the Democratic Party won their campaign in the Supreme Court because the government that was formed on the 8th of June was was interpreted to be just one day late because their interpretation of three months became 90 days rather than three actual months. So I found that a bit of a bizarre story and the period since that Supreme Court victory was marred by the government becoming a minority government and fluctuations in power since then. In fact, Maya Sandu herself went through a short period as being prime minister within that parliament. So I think Moldova generally will be quite relieved that this election returned a majority government with one party because it gives them an element of stability. 
because Maya Sandu's PAS, the Action and Solidarity Party, gained a whopping 53% of the vote and is projected to take 63 seats in the Moldovan parliament, which is well over the 51 required for an outright majority. And it's the biggest vote share for one party in the history of the post-Soviet Union competitive elections in Moldova. And only once before has a party gained more seats, which was in 2001. She personally described the results as the end of the reign of thieves off the back of a period dominated by corruption and some anti-government protests in the last few years from which her party was born. And yes, as I said, I think it's a turning point in a country that has been recently marred by quite significant political deadlock. And in Maya Sandu, they found a reformist pro-European Union candidate who has stormed to victory twice in the last eight months. And now her party has complete control of the Moldovan government. Well, I think before we talk about the rest of the results, I think we should talk about Maya Sandu and her party because this has been quite a successful period for her. And this success on Sunday is quite a big success in Moldovan political history. So what do you think has been key to Sandu's success and her party's success more generally within the past year specifically? Well, the key to victory this time round was the diaspora vote, actually, which actually completely pivotal uh, to her victory. I have some amazing statistics here. In 2019, 75,583 of the Moldovan diaspora voted. In the elections that took place last Sunday, 212,145 people voted. So that's nearly uh, more than doubling of the number of diaspora that voted. And of those, H, Maya Sandu's PAS party won 86% of the vote, which is an astonishing figure. So that, uh, that ensured, that helped boost the relatively low turnout in Moldova and ensure that turnout overall in Moldova only dropped two percentage points. And the diaspora vote are people who were disillusioned with Moldova's uh, the economic prospects in Moldova and then having to go overseas to look for economic opportunities. So I think that fitted in Maya Sandu's political image as one of a change candidate, particularly resonated with a disillusioned group of Moldovans mm -hmm. who was forced to go overseas. And they have somebody who uh, is relatively young, uh, female, which is totally the antithesis of who has run Moldova in the past. And so therefore, I think her, with her language that she used, as you alluded to earlier, one of describing the reign of thieves as something that characterized Moldovan politics in the past, she was able to tap into that for a particularly successful outcome. And don't forget, I think what also helped the key to a resounding success was the nature of why this election had to take place in the first place. You know, they failed to not to nominate a prime minister. There were disagreements between that and the judiciary. And it was a very turbulent political process. And at a time when COVID-19 pandemic has been running rampant, I think Moldovans just said, enough is enough. Let's give Maya Sandu complete control. And given that PAS has never really mm -hmm. controlled the entire government before, let's see what can happen over the next four years. I mean, you mentioned there about the political turbulence in recent years. The party itself was formed in 2016 during the widespread anti-government protests in Moldova. Is the party still the same anti-government party? Did it have that kind of platform or 
has it moved towards being more of an ideologically driven party instead? I think yes and no. I think anti-corruption and this idea of trying to implement reforms that will ensure Moldova um, reduces its corruption and increases its ranking in the global transparency index is still something that is still very rooted in the party. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think it's also you cannot be ignored that one that it is also a big pro-European party as well. And Maya Sandu, since her election as president last November, has really tried to pivot it away from much more Moscow aligned to much more Western aligned, be it US and the mm. European Union as well. And I think the US, the EU are aware of this potential of what Maya Sandu can bring. In a, in a sense, opportunity, particularly helping Moldova out with COVID-19 vaccinations as well. In the last week, for example, in the lead up to elections, both the US and uh, donated 500,000 vaccines to Moldova. And that I know um, can, can be seen, I suspect, with quite a big political lens as such to try and help Moldova and its pro-European image as well. On the economic front, I think PAS is very much of a centre-right party, which is different from the last time Moldova had a pro-European government in the late 2000s. That was more of a centre-left government. But nonetheless, Maya Sandu has also proposed raising the minimum pension as well. So that suggests that there is still some social um, policy, uh, slightly more centrist, centre-left social policies involved as well. But nonetheless, I would say it's still anti anti-government, anti-establishment and anti-corruption, but there's also pro-EU foreign policy as well, given that cleavage Moldova. And now that Maya Sandu is no longer dealing with a divided government, do we expect a significant policy shift from her as, as, as president? I expect that to be much more calmer waters in Moldovan politics for the next few years. Um, I doubt that it will get the same tension that existed between the legislature and the executive. And we could see some of those reforms being implemented as well. So I do not, so we could see a significant mm. policy shift in that aspect, given that the last year have been characterized by indecision and inaction, really, as they fought for control over who will be prime minister, who I expect to be Natalia Gravalita, who is a former finance minister. Maya Sandu tried to nominate her twice, and I don't think she would expect to face any problems this time around. It would mean as well that this will be the first, one of the rare countries that has an elected female head of government and head of state, which I think is historic in itself. It certainly is. Um, and, and looking at who came second in this election, and although it was quite a distant second, I think it's nonetheless important to talk about just because of the context of Moldovan politics which was the newly formed bloc of communists and socialists, which is the new home of former President Igor Dodon, who lost the presidential election to Maya Sandu back in November. And it was led into this election by another former president, Vladimir Voronin, who was Europe's first democratically elected communist head of state when he was elected back in 2001 and served eight years as president. And they gained collectively 27% of the vote and just 32 seats, which is the worst performance of the main communist socialist party in Moldova since the very first democratic election they held. Are you surprised with how badly this new bloc performed, given it's led by two titans of Moldovan leftist politics? 
I have to say, I'm not particularly surprised. If this election was dominated by the willingness of change and anti-establishment, you had two former presidents who, you know, dominated Moldovan politics for so long. Their parties have come produced so many prime ministers as well. I just can't see why that they would do well in such an environment. So honestly, I'm not that surprised. I will note though that 27% of the vote and they got uh, the 32 seats. It's only a small decline in the number of seats. They only lost three seats in total. It suggests to me that they still the party's base is still with them. It wasn't a complete collapse of the party's base as we have seen in other parts of Europe. So Mm -hmm. there is a foundation to build on, but it's trying to find back and gain back the votes that was lost so comprehensively to the PAS that will prove to be the big challenge. The party Mm. did very well in more rural areas in the north of the country. So there's still a base there and in the the edges of the country that border Russia, as would befit a party that um, is more pro-Russia aligned. So there's still a base for the party to build on, but it is nonetheless at this stage going to be very hard with the PAS party being, um, and Maya Sandu very much in a honeymoon period. Mm. And I mean, Igor Dodon performed significantly better than the party did this time in last year's presidential runoff. What changed between then and now? And where do you think these supporters went? The people who supported Dodon and then didn't support the bloc of communists this time round? I won't be surprised if a lot of them stayed home. Um, the, the turnout figures, as I said, is masked by the significant increase in diaspora vote. The, so their voters could have just stayed home rather than voting for Dodon. And that, and that could be because they are quite happy with this government and, but, and don't see any real need to oust it. It could also be the fact that um, the government, as I said earlier, was in, is in a honeymoon period. We're less than a year mm-hmm. into the Maya Sandu presidency. And it's gone relatively well from her point of view. There's been not major scandals affecting her. And she's able to, to show tangible results from this pro-Western shift. Like as I mentioned, with the EU and the US both willing to help, help it out. And if a country wants to gain EU membership, it has to you know, undertake anti-corruption reforms. And that's something that in a, part, in a country that is riven by political crises and uh, and and corruption that they want to see progress on these fronts and and that could have appealed to a lot of ordinary Moldovans who were frustrated with the direction of the country. Hmm. I mean, you talk about Maya Sandu boosting her profile. I mean, she's met since she's become president. She's met with Ursula von der Leyen in Brussels. Um, she's developed quite close a relationship with the Romanian Iohannis as well. So I think she's she's got off on the ground running for sure as president, and I think she'll be boosted by this performance as well. And we've talked about it a few times already, but Moldovan politics has been dominated by a battle between Moscow and European Union alignment. To what extent does this battle become front and centre of election campaigns like this one? Or is it more of an assumed divide that people tend to associate with the parties? I I do think that it is an element, but there's also ideology that takes its place between the much more left-wing communists and socialists and the now more centre-right government leaning. I think what is unique in Moldova is that there's also a foreign policy cleavage which doesn't necessarily exist in some other countries. So to such a vast extent, is Mm. there a future? 
Well, I think what we generally see with parties that are anti-corruption or anti-establishment, that it has to prove itself, particularly if a party, as I said in PES at the very start, that has never been in government, it's governed by itself, you know, and has all the reins of the legislature and the executive. When Maya Sandu was prime minister, she had to work with Igor Dordon, who was the complete opposite of her ideology. ideology. So I think this is the time for the party to prove itself. In many other countries, that has been the falling grace for the party, and they need to prove themselves. Otherwise, voters might think, well, they're just the same as any other. So we might as well go back to what the past used to be. And the big hope for Maya, Maya Sandu was in the last election might lead to disillusionment come the next. Mm. Well, it'll be certainly something we'll be keeping an eye on because in Moldova's relatively short political history, they've had quite a few presidents and there's been quite a high turnover. So Maya Sandu will definitely be 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 closely watched on that respect as well. But what I was going to say as well is that we saw in 2019 in the parliamentary elections that the PAS won five districts. Well, this time they won in 26 of 33 that exist within Moldova. So as we keep, as we keep saying, this was quite a resounding victory for Maya Sandu. And I'm sure many people will be watching what she does with this big victory. And I just want to quickly point out as well is that the party completely swept the capital city of Chechnya, which is really rare for a centre-right party to sweep the biggest capital city of, um, of any country. If you look at the UK, for example, it is dominated by the Labour Party and as well where the social democratic strength is. So I think Moldovan politics in this election was unique in the sense that, that it was more of an anti-corruption, anti-establishment, the young were particularly disillusioned, and Maya Sanders, as a young woman, uh, was perfectly able to capture it. And I think that's a good point to end on. Yeah, and I think, as you said, it's a good moment to take a little break, and we'll be right back in just a moment with our analysis from last week's election in the Balkans. So, welcome back to Ballad to Talk About. Our attention will now turn to the Bulgarian elections, which was a snap election called after a failed government uh, formation attempt after its last election in April. And it looks like from the results that government formation this time around were equally difficult. The populist and anti-establishment, there is such a people party led by pop star Slavi Trivinov, secured first place and 24% of the vote and 65 seats, which is an increase on the 17% and 51 seats they got last time around. And they narrowly beat by 0.2% uh, former Prime Minister Boyko Borisov and his GERP party, which secured 24% and 63 seats, which is a slight decline from the 26% and 75 seats it secured last time. So first, Sam, uh, just a question on, these, on the headline result is that we saw there is such a people gain 7% of the vote and quite and 14 seats, whereas the GERP party lost 2% of the vote, but lost uh, 12 seats, which is quite, which is almost suggests in terms of seat percentages, a straight switch from GERP to uh, there is such a people that is not necessarily reflected in the share of the vote. So Sam, why has GERP so, lost so many seats compared to its share the vote loss? 
Um, I think it all comes down to the electoral system in Bulgaria, which is a proportional representation system, but from 31 multi-member constituencies. So, and because some of these constituencies have up to 16 seats available, marginal shifts in the vote share within those much larger constituencies can mean that there's a big transference of seats that maybe if GERB were to increase its uh, support in some areas of Bulgaria, which indeed it did, um, this was offset by a big seat loss within some of the bigger constituencies that tend to be focused in the more urban areas of Bulgaria, which is where Slavi Trifonov's party did its best. So I think although we talk about these countries as having proportional systems, Yes, they do have proportional systems, but when they have multi-member constituencies that are of varying sizes, we can see situations like this where there's a big transference of seats, but not necessarily a large transference of votes at the same time. I think that's really interesting as well. And you hit home particularly as GERP has lost in the urban areas about how damaging effect mm. that will have on its seat count as well. They're only now two seats behind when they were so far ahead. In fact, there were over 20 seats ahead in the last elections in April, which is quite a big shift. Trivenov himself is seeking to form a coalition with two small anti-corruption parties. Democratic Bulgaria, which finished in fourth place with 13% and 34 seats, and Rise Up Out with Crooks, which finished, uh, which was just managed to get into part over the 4% threshold and got 13 seats. But nonetheless, this coalition of three parties will fail to win a majority, which as it only will garner 112 seats, which is less than 121 seats it needs for a majority. So Sam, even if Trivenov managed to form a minority government, he will need the support of other parties to pass legislation and crucially the budget, which is often treated as a confidence issue. What are the chances that Bulgaria can avoid a third election in the future? I think the chances it avoids a third election are reasonably low because you said that there was an intention to form a coalition government. Well, actually, in the last 24 hours, Slavi Trifonov has actually outlined that he has no intention of doing that and wants to form a minority government with purely his party, which he then assumes will be supported by other parties. Um, and this has not gone down well at all. Firstly, because he announced his intention to form this government before he's even been given the mandate to form a government at all. And he announced this um, through a video on Facebook, and it's been branded the Facebook Republic scandal, uh, in which even parties that you outline there, like Democratic Bulgaria and the Rise Up Out with the Mafia Party, have said that they, they don't support this approach to forming a government. So we thought it was going to be unlikely that Slavi Trifonov was, was capable of forming a government. Well, it seems that now it's pretty much impossible unless some of these parties change their positions. And that's on top of having already the Socialist Party, which is another potential party to support this government, or the Turkish Minority Party Movement for Rights and Freedom, who have also been sceptical, then I'm just wondering where support for Slavi Trifonov will even come from before he'd shot himself in the foot by announcing this government prematurely. Indeed. And 
and it does strike me as as alienating your probably your best coalition partners right from the get off. It's not doesn't suggest a party that has great political nous. To be frank, what about policy wise? Mm. We know that they are anti-establishment party, and we and we know that PAS is also an anti-corruption party as well. But they have, as we discussed earlier, quite a pro-EU stance and a centre-right ideology. What kind of ideology, economic and social policies would Trivenov and his "There is such a people" party pursue if he becomes prime minister? Well, this is the million-dollar question because actually it's not particularly clear where his ideological leanings or his party's ideological leanings lie. We have a list of policies that they've put out, but a lot of them tend to be constitutional rather than、um, social or economic. So we have things like. Changing the proportional representation system to a two-round voting system, halving the number of members in the National Assembly, compulsory voting. There is an element of further European integration here, and there was an allusion to expanding welfare provision. But in terms of broader, even ideological platforms for how to govern the economy, it's it's quite unclear.、Um, beyond being a, a Populist protest party who are anti-corruption and lukewarm pro-European Union. It's it's very unclear as to what their position actually is. I don't know if you've managed to find anything in addition to that, Chern. No, and I think that's one of the big things is that concerns me. To be honest, if I was in Bulgaria, because you know the COVID pandemic is far from over, and. Actual concrete economic policies to respond to the COVID nineteen induced shutdowns and dealing with the health crises as well has necessitated some kind of policy platform, and it, it's clear to show you how angry Bulgarians are. If in this COVID you know pandemic they're willing to set aside discussion of usual economic and health policy discussions to just focus still on anti-establishment and corruption, it must show the depth of anger. In regards to that issue, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, I mean, you talk about COVID.、Um, Bulgaria managed to perform quite well in the first wave and got some plaudits for managing it quite well. But in the wave that began in autumn and has continued throughout the winter, Bulgaria has actually had some of the highest case and mortality rates in Europe, with a completely overwhelmed healthcare system. So, it's not just about managing the COVID pandemic. In general, it's managing quite a profoundly serious situation within Bulgaria, which now three months on from the last election, which doesn't form a government, looking down the barrel of another election, which is going to fail to form a government, is problematic to say the least for Bulgarians. And just quickly, last on the issue of anti-corruption, is there a danger that, and we briefly talked about this in Moldova, that? If a party is formed or largely of anti corrupt,、uh, based on the fact that it poses anti is anti corruption party, their voters do not see enough progress against corruption in the term of government, which potentially could be the case if corruption is very endemic within a country and deep rooted in society. That eventually, there is such a people's party support will collapse. I think that's definitely a risk. I mean, a lot a lot of observers have also talked about the potential if. If Bulgaria does indeed have a third election this year in autumn, that it's unclear whether the support for there is such a people party will even be maintained into that election, because it tends to be these 
protest parties which tend to fare worse the more elections have to be held because people are just tired of being unable to form a government and turn their attention back to the parties with bigger infrastructure to try and put that kind of government together. So I think the risk is much shorter term than a governing arrangement. But I completely agree that if the this this party goes into government pretty much exclusively on the pledge of tackling corruption in government and doesn't manage to do that even within one term, then I think they will pay the electoral price for that. Let's take a look at some of the other players in Bulgarian politics, which is very interesting. And we should start off, I think, in a unique point and a part and an alliance of parties that failed to get over the 4% threshold. And it's actually the Bulgarian far right, which is particularly interesting. Um, the, the Bulgarian far right stood uh, Bulgarian patriots was a combination of three parties, the Bulgarian national movement, the Volga movement, and the National Front for the Salvation of Bulgaria only managed to get 3% of the vote, which is quite unique, actually, if, if you look at the wider context of Europe and Eastern Europe in particular. Why is it in Bulgaria that these far-right parties are not as strong? I think one big reason is that nationalism and anti-establishment politics and populism have manifested themselves differently within Bulgaria because they've manifested themselves within parties like There is Such a People and Democratic Bulgaria who benefited from the anti-government protests of a few years ago. And I think in this case, because you have the centre-right represented by Borisov in terms of the establishment, and then you have the anti-establishment parties more towards the left in general, then there's not much space for these parties to emerge. And I think another big problem here is that they fail to outline a united far-right platform. And parties always suffer if they can't present a united platform. You talked about this Bulgarian Patriots Alliance that existed this time, but even within that, the leaders of the main parties involved all agreed not to stand as candidates because they thought the level of infighting was too high that it, it they wouldn't be capable of a platform where the leaders were standing themselves as candidates. And that is what brought down previous far-right blocs as well. So it's not a great start if you're already agreeing in the terms of your alliance that there is going to be infighting. Um, so when you when you have this kind of alliance plus not much political space in which to operate, then I think you're kind of doomed from the start. Indeed, and I think that's a warning, really. And again, far-right infighting is something we've seen throughout Europe and the Euro 2020 theme podcast that we've been doing. It's not the last far country to see far-right infighting and the consequences of voters punishing it for that. Let's talk a bit about GERB. It was known as the Citizens for European Development. And um, it formed an alliance with the Union of Democratic Forces, or SDS, is led by former Prime Minister Boko Borisov, who is a former mayor of Sofia and bodyguard to former communist leader Todor Zevkov. It has stated its priorities of preserving family as the cornerstone of society, achieving an energy independence, and interestingly, fighting crime and corruption. So actually, it was an anti-corruption party before there is such a people found um, was party swept the country. So Sam, with such a stated election platform, 
And why has voters become disillusioned with GERB, particularly its anti-corruption message that it had? And it is notable, actually, that ever since it tried to win re-election in 2013, it has lost seats in every single election that has fought. And there have been four elections that have taken place since then. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, especially when you look at economic indicators, which usually in political science will suggest to you whether an incumbent party is going to perform well, because the Bulgarian economy has actually improved under Boyko Borisov and the close alignment with the European Union, interestingly, has also improved. Um, I think the main thing here is all about corruption and scandals because they have the party has been repeatedly accused of electoral fraud and attempts to silence free press. Um, the third term was also marred by a quite a significant property scandal where government officials were found to be purchasing luxury accommodation at significantly lower rates than the market value offered to normal Bulgarians. So I think what all it did was um, emphasize that there's one rule for the political class and one rule for everybody else. And in an environment where there's already hostility about corruption, I think that just leaves a sour taste in the mouth. And I think that is what provoked the anti-government protests. And I think that is what has led to Borisov's struggles this time around as well. Not least as well, what we talked about with the pandemic, with they serve, they surfed the first wave, but the second wave brought them down entirely. And I think the lack of preparation for that and the lack of effective management of the healthcare system also contributed to their fall in support this time in particular. So therefore, is GERB a personality party or an ideological party? I would go, I would lean towards it being more of a personality party, mainly because every election it's participated in since 2009, which was the first national election it participated in, it's been led by Boyko Borisov. And I think it's hard to look beyond his personal reputation as to why it performed so badly this time. So I think maybe it actually began as an ideological party with a gap in the political market, so to speak. But as your party becomes much closer linked to the person leading it, to this point where I think it's almost become inseparable, it's difficult to view it as anything other than a Boyko Borisov party. Would you agree? I would totally agree with that. And I think you said that he's led the parties, defined the party, and the party struggles is very much linked back to him, really. Mm -hmm. And with any personality party, it's very difficult for somebody else to come through it and, you know, provide a fresh injection of what the party needs, where exactly. it usually could be the case in an ideologically driven party. One ideologically driven party is the Bulgarian Socialist Party, which was the remnants of what used to be the communists which governed Bulgaria until the 1989. This time around, it suffered, an, after a record low performance in April, it suffered even worse performance this time around, securing only 12% of the vote and 34 seats, which is down seven from last time. So Sam, will the Bulgarian Socialists become the latest social democratic party to be pasofikai? In other words, completely disappear as PASOK has in Greece, because it certainly seems to be heading into in, in this direction right now. Yeah, I mean, this this cycle of elections was clearly a bad period for the Socialist Party. 
I think one glimmer of hope here is that the 2017 election, which was the last parliamentary election held before the one in April, it was actually quite a good cycle for the Socialist Party. And I don't think that this Socialist Party has been suffering to the same extent as other parties around Europe, because rather than it being a continuous decline, there have been flare-ups of positive outcomes. That said, this is a particularly terrible result for them, and I think can largely be credited to the fact that they were another Bulgarian party who were dominated by excessive infighting. I mean, a lot of reports have said that Cornelia Ninova, who is the leader of the Socialist Party, spent more of this term fighting people within her own party than fighting Boyko Borisov. And I think when party, when people don't feel like you are a united force or a force capable of dislodging a government you don't like, then you will turn to people who are more explicitly anti-Borisov, which in this case were the three parties formed out of the anti-government protests. Interesting. So therefore, can we assume that a lot of its voters went to vote for the three anti-corruption parties like there's such a people rise up out with crooks and democratic Bulgaria? I certainly think so, because I think a lot of the Socialist Party voters, particularly in the past decade, have been primarily motivated by ousting Boyko Borisov as Prime Minister. And it seemed like this time around, the best vehicle from which to do that was these parties. So I think it'll be interesting to see, particularly if we end up with yet another failed government attempt, whether some of the voters think, well, maybe the Socialist Party is actually better positioned to dislodge Boyko Borisov than these three parties who can't agree to work together. Indeed, and like I said, there's no ideological mesh other than anti-corruption yeah. in a world where economic policy and, and health policy is still, you know, at the end of the day, it's a country's bread and butter that can more bind parties together rather than a simple message exactly. of anti-corruption. So, Sam, we've discussed two elections in, um, in rather similar part of the region. What takeaways and any joint lessons can people look at these two elections draw, really? I think one big theme we've talked about today is about the ability of new parties to emerge quite quickly. I mean, the, there is such a people party in Bulgaria has managed to do this to quite a large extent within one cycle, has gone on to win an election within within one term. They didn't exist two years ago. And then we have Maya Sandu's PAS, who, whose result, yes, is miles more impressive, but they have had longer in which to establish that. And I think it just shows how potentially volatile these party systems are when you have unpopular leaders because people feel like within a proportional system, they can emerge to dislodge that quite successfully. I think another trend here, which we might be talking about in the months and years to come, is about the European Union, because Moldova's election certainly was moving Moldova closer to the European Union. And But on the flip side, Bulgaria is not particularly clear because Boyko Borisov was a controversial figure, but he was a particularly reliable figure in European circles, and a lot of European leaders had quite good relations with him. And I think the European Union might be concerned if there's yet more protracted government formation talks in one of its poorest member states, because that can have a knock-on effect on European policy more widely, especially as they look to financially recover from the pandemic. So my two themes really are new parties and the European Union. 
How about you, Chen? Well, first of all, when you say my um, Maya Sandus and PAS are relatively not as new, they only founded in 2016, yeah. so it's been five years, not that new. And I think I would like to point out this new party front that both Moldova and Bulgaria, in the grand scheme of Europe, are relatively new democracies, mm -hmm. only really becoming democracies after 1990, which is only 30 years, which compared to the Austrias of the world, which you talked, and Denmark that we talked about, you know, in the Euro 2020 theme month, these are relatively short periods and the democracy is still maturing and growing in a very new and different way. So there's quite a lot of volatility, I think, associated with that. And I think that's what could explain really this relative rise and falls of these mm -hmm. parties. Um, the second thing I would really say is that this was a good election for anti-establishment parties. You know, there is for such sure. a people and PAS. And we're seeing in both countries, I wonder whether moving forward, we will see an anti-establishment versus establishment party cleavage, really. And what is more remarkable that it's taking place, as we hinted throughout this podcast, throughout a COVID-19 pandemic, where we initially saw last year a big rally around the flag effect of competence and government, you know, you know, voters really wanting governments to work for them in both policy and favoring technocrats, really. So they're now resorting to anti-establishment parties, I think marks a turning point yeah. within how politics is influenced by the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you agree, Seb? Yeah, and I think that's a really nice point to end on, which is we've spent the last nearly a year talking on this podcast about how the pandemic has led to incumbency support. But I wonder if we're now entering into the period as countries look to emerge from the pandemic, where the focus is more on recovery, where the criticisms that could have been brewing for this past year within the pandemic now begin to emerge in a climate where people feel like they can criticize the government and criticize policy and look at, well, how good could it have been if we'd have had somebody else? So I think you're right in identifying that we're maybe entering that new period. And don't forget as well, most people have been living under COVID-19 restrictions for a year plus now. So they've had, there's enough time for that frustration to build, mm -hmm. particularly as many parts of the world has seen a second, third, fourth wave and people having to go back under more restrictions despite, I think people could tolerate the first one because they could see the need for it. But the fact that many countries are taking many steps backwards has finally allowed the discontent which dissipated a year ago to explode in such a magnificent fashion, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that's a good point that I'm sure we'll be talking about for weeks to come as we turn our attention to more elections across Europe in the autumn. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Join us again next week when we'll be marking the beginning of the postponed Tokyo Olympic Games by looking at the parties and politics of Japan. And as always, we'll also be bringing you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe on the podcast and on our social media channels. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Sam and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.